This BazCast has been powered by Audible. Log on to audibletrial.com slash bazreviewsbazcast today to receive a 30-day free trial, and you'll pick up an audiobook that's yours to keep. Hi everybody, and welcome back to the Baz Reviews BazCast. I'm your host, Baz, and I've got another awesome episode lined up for you. I'm going to keep the content pretty light on my end because I have a very special interview lined up. I'm not going to tell you who it is, so you're going to have to tune in and find out. Along with that interview, I'm going to be having reviews from both June and July, as well as a few special announcements on my end. So without saying too much more, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the show. We're half a dozen episodes in here on the BazCast, and the content is going to keep getting better. Hello everybody, if you're a returning listener here, welcome back, and if you're new here, welcome aboard. My name is William Bazone, aka Baz, and I'm the creator of Baz Reviews, the best place to discover cool music. This podcast is just a continuation of my blog. I, On my blog, I do monthly reviews of albums and songs, I interview artists from across the country and across the world, and I also provide my opinions on certain things in music if there is some important music news. I also have some amazing news for you guys. Um, I said last month that I was not sure that I was going to expand to Spotify or diversify where I was present on the internet, but we are now on Spotify Podcasts. It was a very easy process, much, much simpler than Apple Podcasts, and I had my podcast up there in about two hours compared to two or three days on Apple Podcasts. I think I'm really taking a good direction with Baz Reviews. If you want to see some more awesome Baz Reviews content, Log on to wtbazone.wixsite.com slash bazreviews today. Give me a follow on Instagram, at bazreviews, and be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you're liking what you're hearing. We'll get into more of today's episode right after this. I want to give a huge shout-out to Anchor for being my choice of podcast hosting. With the rise of home speakers and mobile devices, podcasts are quickly becoming a popular form of consuming media. If you've ever wanted to make a podcast, do it with Anchor. It's a free and easy way to record, edit, and distribute your podcast across the internet. And what's even better? You can do it all from your phone or PC. I think what's really great about Anchor is they help you find sponsors based on the focus of your podcast. That allows you to make money from your podcast even if you don't have a huge following. So don't wait. Download the Anchor app for iOS or Android or log on to anchor.fm to start creating your own masterpiece today. So June was another awesome month of listening. I listened to a lot of really great albums, and I heard a lot of awesome songs as well. But I was a little bit busier last month. I was traveling out of the country, and some of the reviews that I had done were featured on the last podcast. So if you're interested in checking those out, fast forward to about the 10 or 11 minute mark, and you will hear about those. Um, But right now, I want to dive into the albums that I had listened to for the rest of the month. And the first one I'm going to talk about is I Am Easy to Find by The National. Um, It's been a couple of years since we've had a national record, so I was pretty eager to check this one out. After a first listen, I will say that it was a pretty solid return from the seasoned Cincy Rockers. I really like the stylistic choices on here a lot. The quiet and dark production with some gloomy songwriting really makes this record special. Another thing that I'd like to note is that the band was not afraid to experiment with going into new styles of music either. There There are elements of dream pop, classical music, the list goes on. I really liked songs like Quiet Light, The Pull of You, and Ryland. They're some of the deepest the album has to offer. It was pretty hard to just pick two or three tracks that I really liked though, you know, they're all really well done. Um, I think what's really great about a band like The National though, is that their albums consistently stay good. You would expect an indie rock band that has been around so long to start to decline, but not them. I really do think that Easy to Find was another fine outing overall. I'm feeling a 9 out of 10 on this one. 
The next album I listened to has been backed by popular demand for quite a while. It was DiCaprio 2 by J.I.D. Jid, I, I really don't know what to call him. A lot of Baz Reviews fans have asked, have you listened to J.I.D.? Which I have responded, no. But I figured I would change that up by listening to his most recent release that came out last year. I did think it was a pretty decent album, but I wouldn't say it was out of this world amazing. I wouldn't really call him the next Kendrick Lamar or Anderson Pack as many have so far. I think he tries a little bit too hard to mimic that style in some parts of this record, but it isn't bad by any means. He's a decent rapper, and he's got some pretty hard flows on a lot of the tracks here. I'd say my favorite cuts on here were Westbrook, 151 Rum, and Workout. They all showed him at his best. In terms of the R&B side of things, I will say that besides Workout, um, most of the R&B stuff was not as sharp as it could have been, and I think he should just stick to rapping in the future. Another red flag for me was that some of the and writing needs to be fine-tuned a little bit better in the future. Um, I felt that the album seemed to lose a little bit of its cohesion from time to time. But despite all this, he's still getting a lot of notice in the rap scene, though. He's gotten a lot of awesome features from guys like ASAP Ferg, Dreamville Bosch, J. Cole, and Method Man. That was all super impressive to see. I'd also like to talk about BJ the Chicago Kid's feature on Strawberry. That's also really worth noting, and it's very well done. All in all, DiCaprio 2 is a pretty solid record, but I do think J.I.D. will want to fix some things before he releases another record. Um, I gave this album a 7.5 out of 10. The next album that I listened to was UFOF by Big Thief. I had seen this record on a lot of best of lists so far this year, and I figured I'd have to give it a listen. Um, this is the third album from these Brooklyn folk rockers, and they did a pretty good job with continuing the sound they shot for on their first two outings. For me personally, I think this record took a little bit more time to start getting good, but I did enjoy a lot of the stuff I heard later on in the record. Lead singer Adrian Lenker continues to win audiences over with her raspy crooning vocals and slick guitar skills. Not only is she an amazing musician, but I think each member of the band contributed some pretty awesome things to this album too. In terms of song structures, the songwriting instrumentals are kind of like I Am Easy To Find in a sense. They're quite gloomy, but I do think the offerings on here are some of the best I've heard all year. Um, some of my favorite tracks from this record were UFOF, Cattails, and Century. While there are some really solid tracks on here, I felt like a few of them could have been left off, those being Terminal Paradise and Contact. Um, they seem to deter from the overall sound that the group was going for. Nevertheless, it is a really sharp record, and I think that UFOF definitely lived up to the acclaim it has received. I think it's definitely become one of my favorite folk albums in recent memory. I'm feeling an 8.5 out of 10 on this one. The last album I listened to was a pretty big sinker, one of the most disappointing releases I've heard so far in 2019. It's Apollo 21 by Steve Lacey. Y you know, he he's been on fire lately. He has been featured on a lot of different albums recently, and he's had a strong showing with the LA funk group The Internet. Going into it, I saw a lot of promise with this record, but after listening to it, I had a change of heart. As I've mentioned, he's had so much promise over the last few years with all these different groups and stuff, but now it looks as if that's all for naught. From the beginning, it was just an incredibly painful listen to me. First off, the cohesion with this album was really lacking. It just sounded like a bunch of random tracks that don't have a clear sound or focus. Everything was just all over the place. The instrumentation and production on here are another thing I'd like to note. It was really unusual and not something I would have pictured Steve Lacey trying. The style on here sounds nothing like the sounds he went for on his famous singles like Dark Red or See You Girl. It was really the bedroom pop and garage band ethos that got him to prominence in the first place, so I don't understand why he wouldn't have worked with that to begin with. I'd also like to note that the vocals and songwriting on here are not great. 
each track just seemed very forced and not super genuine. It almost seems as if there's no effort put into any of these tracks. I think there are a few cuts on this record towards the back half that are pretty solid, such as In Lust We Trust and Inside, but I don't think it's enough to save this train wreck of an album. From a first listen, I don't think that Steve Lacey was really ready for a full solo release yet. Um, the record came off as very rushed, and I don't think it showed off his full potential as an artist. I really do think he needs to mature before he puts out another full length. He's had a lot of success with being a collaborator, as I've mentioned, and that's not to be forgotten. I just hope that he won't morph into being one of those artists that's really good as a feature, but not a good solo artist. As a result, Apollo 21 has become one of the biggest disappointments for me in 2019. I gave this album a 4.5 out of 10. So now that I've finished up my recap of June, I'm going to head over to July and tell you a little bit about what I'm going to be listening to now. And did you ever think, am I a good role model? You know, am I a good example for people on how to live their lives? I'm not an example for people on how to live their lives. I'm never in my life would I ever set out to be an example for people on how to live their lives. If you need an example for how to live, then you just shouldn't have been born. The only record that I've listened to so far this month is Season Desist. It's Blarf's new record. It is the debut record from Eric Andre's alleged alter ego. I'm a huge Eric Andre fan, so I knew that I wanted to dive into this project after I heard it was being released. After listening to it in full, I had a sudden revelation. Personally, I think Eric Andre should pull a Joji here. I see a huge opportunity for him. Like Joji, he should completely abandon his comedy career and convert to making music full-time. I was completely blown away with what he was able to do with this record. Blarf's sonic direction, to me, seems as if the avalanche has met Death Grips. It's loud like Death Grips' album The Money Store, but he uses samples to create entirely new songs like the avalanches did on Since I Left You and Because I'm Me. I'm fans of both groups, and that's why I became so drawn to it. The rich soundscapes that resulted of this musical melting pot are nothing short of amazing. Songs like Save It Babe, Banana, and I Worship Satan are some of the best this album has to offer, and some of the best I've heard this whole decade. It's glitchy production, smooth samples, and loud instrumentals make these tracks a truly cinematic experience. Mark my words, everybody. Season Desist will manifest itself into a modern classic and will shape the way music is made for generations to come. It may seem like an eyesore to some, but don't be misled. I will be coming back to this album for a long, long time. 11 out of 10. Um, actually, in all seriousness, though, this album is pretty laughably bad. The production was kind of weird, and um, I was just laughing at it for most of the time. A lot of the samples didn't make any sense. I do think there were a few moments of artistic value here, but nothing that is really worth noting. So um, I think uh, just between you and me here, um, I'll just give this album a negative 11 out of 10, but don't tell anybody, all right? We're just going to go One, with it. One, two, three, and four. Count what you have now. Don't count what you don't have. Now that we got that review out of the way, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be listening to for the rest of the month. I am going to be checking out Wallows' debut record, Nothing Happens. I've heard a lot of really great singles from these guys so far, so I'm going to give their album a full listen and see what I think. Um, I'm also going to be listening to Lizzo's new album, Cause I Love You. She's become a newfound pop star, and I really like some of the cuts I've heard so far on streaming, um, Juice especially. It was released earlier this year, but I do think it is time to review it. Another album I want to check out is Anima by Tom York. It was released late in June, but it definitely 
definitely caught my eye. I do think Radiohead is slightly overrated, but I figured I would check out the newest project of the band's from them. And the last two albums I'm going to listen to is Only Built for the Cuban Links Part 1 and 2 by Raekwon. Earlier this year, I listened to Liquid Source by Jizza, and I was a pretty big fan. I figured it was time to head back to the solo careers of all the Wu-Tang members, and this month I'm going to be checking out some of Raekwon's stuff. So that's all I'm listening to this month. And now, here comes the big unveiling, the moment you've all been waiting for. I would now like to welcome our surprised interview guest onto the show. He's on the phone right now. It's Chris Reed, the lead guitarist of Third Eye Blind. Chris, how are you, man? How's the tour going? Uh, great. We're about a month into it now, I think. We've got about a month of the U.S. legs left to go. So, uh, yeah, it's been it's been awesome. We're big fans of Jimmy Eat World. And now we're fans of Rara Riot. Stephen was, was kind of into that band beforehand, and then uh, he kind of introduced him to us, so, yeah. Loving that. It's great hearing those bands play every night, you know? Awesome, man. So um, right off the bat here, I would like to talk about your influences for a second. Uh, which artists or albums really um, inspired you to want to start a music career in the first place? Um, Prince, basically, <laughs> is the short answer to that. I first started listening to Prince when I was about nine years old. And uh, I just, when I found out that he had all these other albums, I just systematically would save up my pocket money, which was very little back then, and I would just save it up for months, and then I'd buy the next album, you know, prior to that, you know what I mean? I'd just keep on going and getting, so every six months or something, I'd get a new Prince record, as it were, because I was going back to his back catalog, and, you know, my family, I'm from Dublin, Ireland, and uh, my family would go to the UK for uh, holidays and stuff, and, uh, they had bigger music shops in the UK, so I could get Mike Prince's early albums, which you couldn't get someone at that time, anyway. Cool. So I know you joined Third Eye Blind back in 2010 after their longtime lead guitarist was fired. How did you first come into contact with the band? Uh, Brad. I played in a band with Brad, <clears throat> the drummer, for I don't know how many years. We played together in, in a band in L.A. We just used to knock around. He knew he was a chef in Dublin, and I met a, a waiter in Dublin who went to school with Brad and so he was the connection our mate Soren so he was like the he introduced me to Brad and but Brad was just he was the drummer in our band and then he also played some other band I didn't know who they were uh third eye aren't big in Ireland or they weren't on my radar anyway so I didn't really know of that band at all and uh then Brad just called me up one day and said um that uh they were having some issues and he said would you like to come it was like, you got first refusal. So I was like, okay, cool. So I came out to Hawaii and we did a show, learned like 80 minutes of music for a show. Um, he called me like on a Tuesday and the show was on Saturday. And uh, yeah, we just went and did that, met Steven, all of that. And uh, yeah, we did like a few rehearsals there and then did the, did the gig. And and after the gig, Steven just said, all right, you got you got the gig. Uh, so that was it. I just had to go, okay, cool. So, but it wasn't for about another month that I realized that the band were actually quite big. We did, the show we did in Hawaii was like a, kind of an exclusive sort of thing. So it was like an acoustic show to like 300 people or something like that. So it wasn't until we started playing on the US mainland that I saw how big the band was. I figured it was just another band, you know? So you never even knew they were that big? Oh my god, that's that's crazy. I mean, like, you know, it's like, that's so funny. You just thought it was like another ordinary gig, and then you come here, and, you know, 
they're the band that ruled the late '90s. You know, with songs like "Semi Charmed Life" and stuff. So yeah, I mean, that's that's quite a funny story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> so, what would you say has been your favorite musical moment so far with Third Eye Blind? Greatest experience. I mean, every every show is so different, and so far as like the, the people and everything like that. Like we we get to travel around a lot and visit a lot of amazing places, and uh, I think playing like. Summer Sonic and Fuji Rock over in Japan was kind of like a, a milestone for me. And Lollapalooza, just an enormous crowd. I mean, it was, it was it was basically everybody at the festival at that point in the day came to watch us. I mean, it was just you know uh, all the all the people from the festival were there, and then all the bands were on the stage watching watching us from the stage. Wow! So it was just like I was like I think everybody at Lollapalooza is watching us right now. You know. And uh, and there was a kid in in a wheelchair, and he was like down in the back of the in the field. And when we started playing Semi Charmed Life, he his mates lifted him up, and uh, and he basically crowd people carried him. He just crowd surfed the entire crowd on a fucking wheelchair, like. And then when he got to the top, they were gonna just put him down in the pit. And Stephen was like, nah, 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 bring him up, bring him up. So they lifted him onto the stage, and then we finished out the rest of the song with him on the stage, just rocking out with us. That's insane. I, I'd never heard, I've heard a story like that before. I made a video of it. I put up a video of it. It's on our YouTube channel. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure what the title of it is, but you'll see it, you'll see it there. I just put together the, the footage from it and just, yeah, it was, it was quite, quite a moment. <laughs> Yeah, that is crazy, though. Um, but yeah, to prepare for this interview, actually, I was watching a few interviews with the band and stuff. I watched one with Steven, and he actually did mention Lollapalooza as, you know, he said it was one of the best shows that you guys have ever done. So I just thought that was funny how you mentioned that. Yeah, well, I think we were in the middle of a big tour there. We always love it when we are when we do a festival in the middle of a tour because you're just salty. Everybody's just, we're just really in our groove, you know? And, yeah. Uh, we just roll up in our buses and roll in with our crew, and we're just pirates. Just, yeah, it's always a blast when we do it like that. Cool. Now, um, shifting gears here, um, can you describe how the band um, goes about making a song, typically? Oh, Jesus, it changes from song to song. Some songs are just, Stephen just goes, hey, check this out, and he just plays the song from start to finish on the guitar, and then we'll just be in a rehearsal room, or we'll be in the studio, or we'll be at soundcheck. And we'll just be trying out different things to layer on top of that. And, uh, and it'll just be, you know, be like that. Sometimes it's just like me and Brad just kind of jamming off each other. And, uh, and then we play it in a sound check or something. And Stephen goes, whoa, that's cool. And he starts doing something over it. And then suddenly, you know, the song forms itself that way. Um, sometimes Colin, our, our new keyboard player is, uh, He's a writer producer in LA, so he kind of comes up with like little ideas and stuff like that, and uh, gets it together with Stephen, and then we kind of add stuff to it after that. And so, so all of the above, basically. What I would say. So, when you guys are making songs, what would you say is more important to you, the lyricism or the production value and instrumentation? Um, I think it depends on. I mean. Both. I mean, I don't think one is more important than the other, but I think it depends on uh, on the song. Stephen's very strong lyrically. He's always been a really strong lyricist. So uh, if he has like something he's really working around that he needs to get out, then 
I mean, I, I don't think one takes a second fiddle to the other, you know? Like, we don't go to the studio and go, that's fine, now let's get those lyrics, you know? It's, it's, uh, they, they just go hand in hand, you know? Oh, okay, I, I guess that's fair, but, um, if I, if I may for a second, um, I, I think, to me, personally, I think that if the lyrics don't mean anything to you, it's like, what are they going to mean to your audience, right? I mean, anybody, I think, can make something sound good with enough, you know, production background or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, I've interviewed a lot of bands before, and they say that they are pretty evenly weighted. Not one is more important than the other. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, thematically, there are certain things that run through certain songs. And uh Stephen and I are working on some of the video stuff for, for the band we have done for a while. So he, he talks a lot about that and about what, what the song is about and, and, you know, how we're going to visually represent that for the video work and stuff. So um, the the themes and the structures are all there. It, it's interesting sometimes to see when you put three or four songs together that certain, there's certain thematic threads that run through all of them and then you kind of start to see the album kind of form in front of you, you know? Um, while we're on the topic of lyrics, though, um, I know that you guys have been pretty big critics of the Republican Party in the last few years here, um, but what really made you guys want to start becoming, or, or really start making politically charged songs? Well, again, like, we're not, uh, like, I'm, I don't sit down and say, hey, let's write a song about the Parkland shootings, you know? That's not, you know, we were just doing this riff, this is just a, it's a song called The Kids on our new record. Okay. And, uh... So, so that's, that's Stephen's, uh, what would you say? That's, that's, that's what, what he thinks about all of that stuff. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like the, the Republican Party thing, uh, that was, we were on a tour and we were actually doing a, a benefit for, I think for war veterans. And it was, uh, oh no, it was actually for, um, it was for a charity that gives instruments, gets instruments to kids in kind of, uh, inner cities and, and uh, disenfranchised communities and stuff like that. So it's kind of like helping kids find music, you know, no matter where they are, if they can afford it, that kind of thing. So it's a charity that Stephen's worked with before, and we were doing a gig for them in Cleveland, but it was just at the same time as the RNC was on. And uh, so, you know, we kind of figured there'd be a bunch of them at the, at the show. And uh, so, yeah, it was a big deal. We woke up the next morning, we were trending on Twitter because it was like, third headline trolls the, the RNC. Um Stephen's made no uh, bones about his thoughts on the current president of the United States, so uh, I think um, I think they everything is so politically charged right now. It's obvious that like any artist is going to reflect that and uh, mirror it and kind of put it out through a prism of their own uh, magnification. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, it's it's obvious that Stephen would do that this point i think just right now everything's so clearly charged in america it's uh right yeah exactly it's, uh it would be ludicrous if he wasn't talking about it <laughs> honestly you know um right yeah i think you're absolutely right though you know everything here is becoming so politically charged it's like you're almost on like one side or another in a sense you know I mean, you know, I'm yeah. European, so I don't, I don't really fall into that categorization there. And I, you know, we all find it kind of odd. And in, uh, in, uh, in the UK and Ireland, we kind of find that a bit strange. But I mean, I get it. What's What's weird now is that like every single thing has become a political issue. You know? Yeah. Right. I know. If you're talking about 
If you're talking about climate change, how is, why are politicians telling us about that? Scientists should be telling us about that. Like, how is it that if you're pro-climate change, suddenly you're on the left? You're absolutely right about that. You know, it's just, just bizarre to me. You know, I, I, don't, I don't understand why that has to be a political issue as well. You know, uh, people just look for whatever is a popular uh, movement and then they, you know, politicians jump on it. And it's just, it's so patently absurd to see it. That's so obviously, you know, grandstanding. It's, uh, Could not agree more with you there, man. It's kind of laughable. So I, I'm not hugely interested in it just always sounds like the same crap to me. <laughs> so, like those people arguing with each other, and you're on my team, and therefore, you know, it's just them and us. It's like petty tribalism. It's, uh, uh I don't go for that. I don't buy that. That's, I, I'm not part of that argument. I'm, I'm, I'm in the shades of gray, you know. Um, so let's shift away from politics here for a second. Um, I heard that you guys are, um, or I heard Steven say rather that you guys are kind of working on a new album right now or something's in the works. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, everything that's going on with it? Uh, yeah, well, it's basically done at this point. We're just listening to new mixes every day. We're just listening to, you know, different producers have done different mixes and different mixers have done different mixes. So we're just kind of sifting through those. So every day it's like, okay, today we've got... Two mixes of this song and four mixes of that one and one of this, you know, so we're just kind of going going through it like that. And then in our sound checks, we're incorporating how to put those songs into the set and how to play them, you know, as a band live and stuff like that and how we're going to change it or, you know, up it. Um, we recorded the record, I think, like almost entirely at uh, at Sonic Ranch in El Paso, Texas, <clears throat> which is this beautiful big recording facility that we've used a few times and it's right on the Mexican border, on the U.S. side of the Mexican border in El Paso. And so there's no distractions whatsoever. I mean, you can't, there's nothing to fucking do there except make music <laughs> and eat Mexican food. So um, basically that's what we just, we would go there for like a month and just, I mean, we, we call it like a writing retreat where we like go away and we just work on songs and then we'd go, that sounds awesome. And then we can track it there. It's like a beautiful big recording studio. So, um, that's what was done there, and then Stephen did most of the vocals in Los Angeles, I'm pretty sure. Okay, nice, cool, awesome. But uh, it's all done. It's, it should be coming out, uh, you know, uh, in the next month or two. I think August, I think. Hopefully when it's going to be out. So it'll be out around, like, the time you're done touring and stuff, right? I think so. Well, by the time we go, uh, we're going to go over to Europe after this, and uh, for some more touring, and then we're coming back over here for a fall tour, so... Yeah, the record, I mean, initially we had thought, as we always do, that we'd get the record out and then we'd go on tour. So we thought we'd have it out by summer, but, you know, so that I've learned, so we, we always fuck that up. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you talked about the album, I also saw that um, Third Eye Blind is considering making a podcast. What's that all about? Yeah, um, it was just an idea that uh, that I had one day. I was, I was just talking to Stephen about, like, we recorded, I mean, I've been in a band now 10 years almost, and we recorded a whole bunch of songs, uh, you know, that haven't been released and that, you know, they were just demos for records that we were working on and, you know, there were some great bits and some parts of them and, you know, this kind of stuff. And I was saying to him, like, you know, we're never going to release that stuff because you're never going to put your, your, you know, we always put our best foot forward. So I was like, well, we're not, if we're not going to release that stuff, maybe we could, like, almost like, because... I just noticed that, like, the, the people, the, our fans love to, when they see us in the studio and stuff like that, when they see the band working. And so when I make videos and stuff with the band, and when I put up 
content of us in the recording studio, we get this, we see the biggest return on the metrics on that. So I was like, you know, if we can actually talk about these songs and play them at the same time and talk over them, so we're not actually releasing the song. We're not actually, you know, people will get to hear it and they'll get to, but we'll be talking over it. Oh, yeah, that's kind of smart, actually. So it won't be a recording of the song being released, if you get what I mean. It's like an audio commentary, like a director commentary on a, on a DVD. I don't know if they even exist anymore, but that kind of idea. So, and then I was like, we could do the same for video, we could do the same for photographs, we can do the same for, you know, uh, upcoming tracks, live stuff. I was like, well, let's just, if we just centralize it all into one place and just make it a, a like a weekly podcast. It's like, you know, Q&A from your fans, all that kind of stuff. Like, we put out some feelers on our social media about it, and the response has been massive. So now it's basically down to me to spearhead all that and make it into a, an actual tangible thing. So all going well. It's all in the, pro- in, the, in the works, but all going well. We should be looking to start by next week. So very exciting. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's really cool. So this is one of the last questions I have prepared, and then I have a few other smaller ones. But um, what music goals would you say that you and the band have for the future? Oh, boy. I mean, just to keep on connecting with people. I mean, our it's amazing. We go out and do these tours and, you know, we sell out these massive venues and all these people come and just, they have, like, their own, you know, they all get gathered up into pools of, of uh, like, little collections of people who all met each other at, our shows, you know? Oh, wow, that's cool. And they've become really best mates, and anytime we play in town, they go, and, and that's where they connect with each other, and, you know, they were the conduit for them to, to connect with a larger audience, and as a result, we get to have that amazing connection and stuff. Stephen started saying something on this tour. At the beginning of the tour, he just, cause he just kind of ad-libs, he just talks to the audience, and, you know, we're just kind of jamming in the background, and he said, okay, let's let's do this one more time with, you know, you know, all together as one. And he said, if you've got a friend with you, put your arm around them. And it just moved the entire field. They just, everybody just embraced each other and they all swayed as we just sang out the, the last part of semi Charm Life. And it was just incredible. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. That's great. Once we're giving that to people and we're getting that in return, I think that's the biggest reward. Well, and you guys have been around for, like, so long, so it's like, not only do you get people who listened to your music 20 years ago, but you're getting people who just got into it 10 years ago, or even people who are getting into it now. It's like, there's definitely a sense of, like, you know, multi-generationalism there, you know? It's kind of like you're you're building so many relationships with so many different types of people, and that's really what is really awesome about your music. And it's kind of like the classic, you know, those classic rock albums that, like, your big brother passed on to you, you know, when you were too young to be listening to devil music or whatever and he was like here check it out Metallica and you're like fuck yeah and like it's that kind of idea so we see the multi-generational stuff as well there are fans who have been fans of the band since the band since they were in high school or whatever and the band were massive in like 90 whenever right yeah and then they've grown up they still come to the shows now they bring their kids you know that kind of thing so we we get to see multi-generational families in the in the audience as well it's amazing you get people on the front row of our shows all the time with like they got those black X's on their, on their. Uh, yeah, right. On their their forearms or whatever. So to be like they're not they're not over twenty one. They're not let's drink, you know. So so we get everybody the, the whole gamut of 
uh, age groups. All right, Chris, um, before I uh, move on here, I just want to talk to my audience for a second. Um, I am introducing something new to all of my interviews from here on out. I like to call it the lightning round. They're just a couple of shorter questions. You don't have to go into much detail, Chris, um, just about you and your, your background with music, whatever. The first question I have is, name one artist that you find as overrated and one you find as underrated. Jesus, William. Let me think there now. I'm not sure I could answer that. I don't really see... I don't I don't see art as competition. I never have. Like when people say, hey, this guy's a badass guitar player, you know, or this guy is red, or this guy is, you know, I don't, I've never seen that. that guitar, every guitar player plays differently to me. It's like a combination of everything that they are and everything that they do. You know, it's an expression of them. And, uh, and so I just, I can't put it in sporting terms. I can't go like, this is better art, you know? So, then we were just listening to, the other day called I Am Dynamite. And they put out a record that, I mean, we still listen to it. I mean, once a month, maybe at least, it comes on in my house, you know, and our bass player, Kathy, was saying the same thing. And we took them out on tour with us, I think probably maybe about five years ago, four years ago, maybe. And uh, they're just a two-piece, and they're just like the new police. They just sound incredible, and the songs are amazing. And... uh I don't know. I thought they'd be huge by now. I thought they were going to be the next massive big thing. And uh, it's just such a bizarre, uh, perfect storm to, to have to be a successful band in, in, uh, in the music industry now, you know? So I guess, I don't know if it's going to happen for them, or I mean, I hope, certainly hope it does. I don't know if they're happy with where they're at right now. They're kind of mates of ours. So they're still banging away. But, uh, I mean... It just maybe just hasn't had the exposure it needs or, or what, but we, we love it. We think it's fucking amazing. But, you know, nobody's heard it. Crazy. Right, yeah. Now I, I really want to check them out. Thank you for um, telling me about them. Uh, while we are on the subject of albums, though, um, what was the first record you ever bought? Was it a Prince record? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Prince, uh, Prince, I had the first, the first album that I ever got was uh Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. That was and that was bought for me. My my mum bought that for me for Christmas. My mum and dad, it was like a Christmas I had the cassette of Purple Rain. And uh yeah, I was like nine years old. <laughs> and uh the first record that I ever bought then was uh I think it was the uh Paisley Park. It was Raspberry Beret. It was off the around the world in, in a day, that record, the Prince record. And uh, those two singles, those were the first pieces of vinyl that I ever bought that were like mine, you know. And then I remember I got uh, Let's Go Crazy, which is a single off Purple Rain. I got the 12-inch single, and it had like, I had this song on the other side called Erotic City. And uh, I'm listening to that song on my dad's record player, and I've got headphones on. And my dad's a massive music nut, like he's into tons of music. And so he's got loads of records and all the rest of it there. And so he walks by and he sees me listening to this record. And he's like, hey, what you listening to? You know, he's like super enthusiastic about it. And I was like, ah, oh, it's the, the B-side of the Prince single. It's called Erotic City. I had no idea what it meant at all. Oh, really? You know, I'm like a nine-year-old, ten-year-old kid. I had no idea. And my dad's face just completely changed. And I was like... Oh shit. And then like he was like, oh, okay. And he like walked out of the room and I remember taking out like the dictionary and looking up erotic to 
find out what I was, you know, because I didn't know what the word meant at all. And it said, of sexual pleasure. And I remember going, I don't know what that is, but I'm in trouble. It's like, it's something bad. There's something wrong. And I'm not supposed to be, you know. And meanwhile, Prince is like, Rampic City, you know. Oh, that's rough, man. Yeah, man, that is that is tough. But um, yeah, I mean, you've mentioned Prince as your your influence. You know, he was the first record you ever bought. But um, who would you say are your non musical heroes? My non musical heroes. Um, I remember like when I remember, and I think Chris Rock said this in an interview once as well. He said Prince and Woody Allen were his two. Like he's like I like short. Uh, what did he say? He said it way funnier. But he said like he likes short. Uh, prolific people. It's like every year there's a new Prince record, every year there's a new Woody Allen movie. He was like, that work ethic, he wants that too. So he was like, every year he tries to put out a new special, get one hour together, you know what I mean? So I remember when I was growing up, I was well into Woody Allen. I was like, so I grew up in Dublin, so like my, what I knew about America, I would always joke, would be like uh, Woody Allen and South Park. It's like, these are the two things that I, I was like, this is what America's like, you know? Like Woody Allen has like the romantic vision of New York City and you know the kind of intellectual East Coast of America, that kind of intelligentsia that I was kind of attracted to. And then South Park was kind of just like, you know, Cartman is just the the eleven year old boy in everybody who will say and do absolutely anything and speaks his mind and you know is terrible, but like the social commentary is is just breathtaking. I mean, even to this day, what they do is so. I think uh, yeah, right. There's that. And then, you know, Star Wars. Just obsessed with that as a kid as well, so. Uh, moving on from that, um, who was the first artist you ever saw live? Was it Prince? Prince. Wow. Oh, Park, right. Parky, Parky Cleave, yeah. He played in, in Ireland, and I begged my parents to let me go. He played down in Cork in a place called Parky Cleave. Cool. My parents let me go with my two mates who were older than me and uh, massive Prince fans and uh, a gay couple. So it was, we were quite progressive back then in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that was that was my first gig. And, I, yeah, that was just mind-blowing. And then, I mean, I got to see Prince many, many times right. uh, over the years. But uh, he, he did two nights in Dublin years later. He did two nights in Dublin. And every, at that state of time, you know, at that point, everybody knew that Prince was notorious for doing after shows. He'd just pop up somewhere and fucking play for three hours and then fuck off. And it was just like, what, you know? Wow. So he did these two shows at the, at, at the Point Depot in Dublin, and they were massive. <clears throat> and after the first show, there was a rumor, you know, yeah, he's going to play up in this club called We Raw. And uh, it was like, you know, if you get up there, you might get in, you might get to see him play. So I was like, jumped on my bicycle, cycled up to We Raw, hanging around outside with a bunch of other Prince fans, nothing going on. You know, a couple of hours later, there's nothing going on. We're all like, oh, okay, fuck it. So we all went home. And the next night, went to see him again in the point at the big gig, you know. And then afterwards, everyone was like, you know, it might be tonight, it might be tonight, the last show, you know. So I was like on the bike up to Re-Raw, and at this point, there was a there was a, a queue outside of people, and it seemed to be orderly. It was kind of like, oh, there's something actually happening here, you know. And then the queue started moving, and uh, so I went in. It was 20 pounds to get in, and I walked in, and Prince was on stage playing The Cross, track off the Sign of the Times record, and he's playing it with Bono. And I was like, what the fuck? So I took out my camera. I'm a camera nut, so I carry a camera with me everywhere. I took out my camera and I took a picture, and flash went off. And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, no. And uh, this guy came over, and he had like a, 
you know, he's a security guy. He had like a security thing in his ear or his radio or whatever. And he comes over and he goes, uh, he just motions for me to come with him, right? So Prince is up there playing. This guy brings me down to the side of the stage. Wait, what? And he looks at my camera and he's trying to work out how to expose the film. And I show him to open it and he takes the film out and exposes the roll. He closes the camera and hands it back to me. And then he kind of gestures. I thought he was going to kick me out. You didn't have a ticket or anything, you know what I mean? You just pay 20 quid to get in. He, he gestures to the front row. Whoa. And they all take a step back because they think I'm some important dude because this guy clearly works for Prince and he's, you know, he's in a suit, he's security, he's black, there's only like five black people in Ireland at that time, you know what I mean? And so he goes like, motions like this and everybody steps back and I walk into the front row and now Prince is maybe a meter in front of me and uh I he just, it, I got to see him play for three hours there and then he jumped down into the audience at the end so he just landed right in front of me and uh shook his hand. So, and I got a pick. No way, that's awesome, man. So it was like, hands down, best gig ever, you know? Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, thank you again so much, Chris, for giving me your time. Um, I wish you guys the best of luck on your tour, and, um, you know, thank you so much again for being on my podcast. Really appreciate you helping me grow my stuff. Um, thank you so much, man. Take it easy. Cheers. Thanks, William. Have a good one, bye. Bye-bye. Wow, I, I just can't even believe that I just got off the phone with, with Chris Reed, you know. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Third Eye Blind, you know. I love a lot of their earlier stuff, Semi-Charmed Life especially, a lot of their other top 10 singles from the late 90s, but yeah, I mean, that was just awesome. I, I sent them an email a few weeks ago, I'm like, hey, um, do you want to, like, do an interview? And then I hear back from their manager, and they're like, sure, yeah, we can get you an interview. I'm like, are you serious? I, I just can't even believe it right now, like, that was just awesome, you know. Thank you so much again to Chris and Third Eye Blind for that. But now that wraps up this episode of the Basscast. Thank you so much again to everybody for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys continuing to support my content. And if there's a take on here that you agree with or you don't agree with, feel free to reach out to me. I'm always down to debate stuff. But for now, I'm going to be signing off. Thank you so much again for listening, and we'll see you again next time with another awesome episode of the Baz Reviews Basscast. I'm listening when you say...